You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Welcome, I'm Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House, and this is our fifth episode of Art in Isolation podcast, again part of Converging Paths, an initiative in partnership with the Barca Trust that comes with the support of the Altair Trust and the Aragon Trust for Culture. Converging Paths, as we often mention, is meant to appreciate the creative encounters with the Islamic world. And few of you have written to me asking exactly what does Islamic world means. Well, the term Islamic world is a controversial one. By itself points to the idea of an isolated and well-defined culture or block of people defined solely by a religion. However, we know, of course, that this is far from the case. And for the countries that form what we call the Islamic world, we find a myriad of cultures, languages and religions coexisting. After all, we don't exactly use Christian to define Europe and North America. So when we use it within this context, it usually refers to a geographical area more than a specific unified culture. The term has been widely used for Islamic art to refer to any item conceived, produced, designed and commissioned in these geographical areas. However, as we saw in our last podcast, hardly any artifact created in the Islamic world was made for liturgical purposes. So to sum up, it is an ambiguous term and others like Persianate and so on have been suggested, but no satisfactory alternative has yet emerged. However, I have here with me a Temeldem, who will be able to better help us to understand the diversity and various ideologies present in this location by working on the example of the Ottoman Empire. Welcome, Etem. You are a teacher at the Boisege University in the Department of History. You hold the post of International Chair of Turkish and Ottoman History at the College de France. You also have been a visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley, at Harvard, at the Columbia University, amongst many, many others. You have written extensively about the Ottoman Empire, the history of the archaeology, its bank, its urban development, and a bit of art. Thank you very much. And today we have started discussing the multiculturalism and diversity that formed the Islamic world. And I feel in particular the Ottoman Empire as an empire is a great example of the complexities of cultural and social integration, which accepted differences, but still all of them could be part of one entity. Yeah, well, it's uh, obviously we should beware of anachronisms and especially of imposing some kind of an intent on the Ottoman Empire as, you know, uh, trying to become a multiculti empire. That's not the case. I mean, uh, the objective of the Ottomans was not to create some kind of convivenza or, you know, a getting together of all sorts of different people, whatever. No, it's an empire, old style, a little bit like the Roman Empire. So basically it has two obsessions. One is, you know, to keep some kind of a control over a population. Uh, territory is not really very clearly defined. It's mostly population because at the end of the day, uh, the real uh, objective of, of an empire is to get fiscal resources, taxes, uh, revenue from the lands that are under its control. So whether the taxpayer is Jewish, Muslim, Christian or whatever, it doesn't really make much of a difference. In fact, there's even an advantage uh, in, in the Islamic tradition to having non-Muslim taxpayers because they pay more because of the inequality of their status 
what is called the dhimma in Arabic or zimmet in Turkish, the status of uh, non-Muslims is one of inferiority. Inferiority that has to recognize itself in all sorts of symbolic gestures, uh, certain colors that cannot be worn and whatever, uh, but also some very concrete measures such as paying the capitation, the haraj, as the Turks call it, or the jizye. It's a, it's a tax that is not paid by the Muslims, but is paid by non-Muslims. So, first of all, uh, we have to realize that if the Ottoman Empire is plural, I'm not, I'm not saying pluralist, but plural, the precondition for that is to a large extent inequality. So uh, if we look back from today's definitions of multiculturalism and whatever, we shouldn't fall into the trap of projecting back into the past some of the positive values we associate with diversity to today. It's, it's very misleading. And some people do it for political reasons or because, you know, there's this big thing you call nostalgia of the past and you'll have to reinvent the past in whatever way. So it's much more complicated. But yes, the Ottoman Empire is an empire. It is a multi-layered and multi-ethnic, multi-confessional structure, which is very different from contemporary Europe at the time. So if you look at the European experience in terms of managing difference, the way Europe, at least until the 19th century, manages difference is by getting rid of the different, of those who are others. You know, this is obvious in the Spanish Reconquista. It's uh, obvious in the in the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 in France. It's obvious in the ghettos of Italy. It's obvious in every measure that in Europe kind of tends towards the crystallization of an identity around one single uh, religion. You know, that's the principle of the 1555 piece of Augsburg, religio. So whatever the prince's religion is, the people will have the same religion. So you want to homogenize. And this you do at any cost. And some of the, 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 uh, the costs are very, very high, very violent. It goes as far as expulsion, um, as in the case of Iberia. Uh, or or France in the 17th century, it goes even towards, you know, massacres, pogroms, and, you know, it's a very violent tradition. But ironically, it's a tradition that while constituting a homogenous body around a religious identity behind one monarch, plants the seed of the nation and therefore makes it possible to move towards equality, which is the underlying principle of democracy. Whereas in the Ottoman case, and that's one of my obsessions uh, in trying to understand Turkish politics, for example, today, in the Ottoman case, this diversity is maintained at the cost of inequality. It is because as a Muslim, you know that you are superior to a, say, a Christian Orthodox, a Greek or an Armenian or a Jew because you know you are superior, that you tolerate their presence. You don't see them as equals. You don't see them as part of the mosaic or whatever of your, your empire. You see them as 
submissive subjects of your empire, which you define in religious terms, as do everyone. I mean, well into the 19th century, most of the Balkan nationalisms were defined in religious terms before they were expressed as some kind of a national identity. This is true of Greece, of Serbia, it's Greece, it's uh, it's true of Bulgaria, um, and it's true eventually of Turkey. I mean, Turkey pretends it's secular today, but ask anyone in the street, they will say that first and foremost, they are Muslims and that Turks, Turkish citizens who are not Muslims, sure, they're citizens, they're Turkish citizens, but they're not really Turks, is the underlying uh, notion. And therefore, you pretend that you have equality, but in fact, you have what Ottomans and Turks like most, uh, which is equity, the beauty of equity, which they translate as adalet, justice, is that you can have equity even in a situation of inequality. As long as you treat people who you consider are inferior to you, and that includes, for example, slaves. I mean, the Ottoman Empire, until the very end, practiced uh, at least domestic slavery. So for slaves, as long as you treat slaves properly, according to the rules of whatever laws there are, and this law generally is the Sharia for slavery, you're okay. You are being fair. You are being just. You are being equitable to them. But that doesn't mean that they can at any moment be your equals because the concept of equality is not there. So this was, you know, um, uh, an introductory statement about the difference between an empire and the nation state and the, the difference between the Ottoman imperial tradition of uh, equity and uh, that of equality as it develops uh, in Europe uh, and spreads uh, throughout the world, uh, at least in principle, as uh, one of the bases of, of democracy. This introduction is insightful because it highlights how much we study the past by imposing modern constructs. Um, how would you then reflect upon the idea of the Ottoman Empire and the later state? So is the Ottoman Empire, how would you define the Ottoman Empire? My, my, my constant struggle with Turkish students at the university is to try to make them understand that the Ottoman Empire is not some kind of an imperial version of the Turkish nation, of the Turkish Republic, or whatever. Uh, there is, of course, some kind of a connection in time, but this is not some kind of a grandiose version of the Turkish Republic as you idealize it today, uh, from a nationalistic pr perspective. And it's not either, it cannot be reduced to the notion of, of an Islamic uh, empire. I mean, this notion of Islamic is extremely problematic. Uh, when you call the Ottoman Empire an, an Islamic empire, when you, you talk about the Islamic world, what do you really mean? That the majority of the people are Muslims? Yeah, but what about the others? What about the way in which the others are integrated into the everyday life of that polity? What about those regions, and there are plenty of them, where the majority of the people are not Muslims, but Christians? or even Jews, look at Salonika in the 19th century. So obviously, and you know, Islamic art is also one of these problematic notions. 
Um, first of all, because uh, it presupposes that everything produced in the Islamic world, quote unquote, is of some kind of a religious nature, liturgical uh, uh, use. But it means also that how are you going to qualify, for example, a Muslim tombstone that was carved by an Armenian artist, an Armenian artisan? I've worked a lot on, on tombstones, on funerary epigraphy, and I know for a fact that most of the production of carved tombstones, so stone carving, if you want, was done in Istanbul, at least, by Armenian uh, artisans. Armenian, Gregorian, later Protestant, whatever, but Armenian, Christian. So if a Muslim gets a tombstone, which is obviously Islamic, because there are inscriptions that refer to, uh, to religion, uh, after all, it's kind of obvious. But if it was done by an Armenian artisan, are you really going to call it Islamic? You will if you think of the function, but then you're using one of the essential elements of art historical analysis, which is the making of the object, of the artifact, uh, because you have a Christian doing it. You have the same problem with Byzantine art historical analysis or categories. The Byzantine art historians generally refer to whatever is produced in the Ottoman lands by the Greek Orthodox after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. They call it post-Byzantine art. Yes. Which is nonsensical. Why do they call it post-Byzantine? Because they associate it with the Byzantine Empire as, you know, basically the political power that stood behind the patriarchate. It defines it. And the real objective is not to call it Ottoman, not to call it Ottoman Orthodox or Ottoman Greek or Orthodox Ottoman or, or Greek Ottoman. Whereas, why wouldn't you? That's really what an empire is uh, is about. I mean, you have in the Balkans, more than half the population, which is Orthodox, Greek in the religious sense of the word, which is a problem for the Bulgarians when they want to break free from the Greek patriarchate and become a nation of their own. But, you know, you have Greek Orthodox around the Balkans who are producing, much in the tradition, much in keeping with the tradition of earlier times, uh, all sorts of artifacts that are, you know, icons, that are religious objects, objects of cult and liturgy that are directly inspired from the Greek Orthodox patriarchal tradition. But these are Ottoman subjects. They live under Ottoman rule. If you refuse to call them Ottoman, and if you insist to give them some kind of an abstract identity of post-Byzantine, that means exactly the same thing as Turks today talking about the Ottoman Empire as a Turkish empire, or using the word Turkish yeah. or Islamic for defining anything they want to study in the Ottoman Empire. It doesn't work that way. So the, the, the whole struggle of an Ottoman historian is, in, in a sense you know, to give the empire the possibility of, quote unquote, striking back, of talking for itself with all the complexity, the ambiguity, the confusion that that implies. It's wonderful that we're talking about all the societies that integrated the Ottoman Empire. For example, we keep referring to the Greeks 
And I think this is a very relevant topic because if we remember, just before the corona outbreak, by January or so, there was a major sociopolitical issue in the borders of Turkey and Greece, in which waves of refugees were allowed to cross the borders and it created this clash in between the European Union and Turkey. And it's very important we're talking about the history of the Ottoman Empire. And I wonder how can we better understand this contemporary clash through historical eyes? I don't think every current situation can be explained through history. I mean, it's one of the dangers of constantly, you know, drawing parallels between the before and the after and linking every action of, uh, say, a nation state like Turkey to its Ottoman past or of Greece to its Byzantine or to its Greek nationalist 19th century past, whatever. It's, It's problematic. I mean, obviously... Uh, Greece and Turkey have a lot of history in common, a lot of bad blood, too. Uh, After all, Greek independence in 1830 is uh, one of the most brilliant cases of secession in a very conservative Europe that generally refuses to condone secession and defends the status quo. So it's a very iconic moment. And it's a slap in the face of the Ottoman to have to live from 1830 on with this tiny nation state, uh, which is under European protection and which defies the authority of its former masters, quote unquote. Now, obviously, you can draw a parallel between that and the situation of Greece today in Europe, which is one of the arguments very often used by Turkey, Mm. uh, you know, uh, Greeks being the spoiled brat of Europe and whatever. In fact, there are Europeans who say that too. But, you know, but then again, I don't think history repeats itself. I don't think there are very solid patterns that will help you to explain everything that's happening today through history. But then again, there are breaks and continuities. And therefore, obviously, you have to look at history to understand what's going on. But the the context of uh, these refugees being used uh, to a large extent by two nation states, and especially by Turkey as uh, some kind of a threat against uh, Europe, that's something that is very different from the Ottoman way of dealing with migration or dealing with displacement. The Ottomans have constantly used that within their own borders, using internal exile or deportation as a way of increasing the population of a region they want to develop. I mean, that's how they've, quote unquote, conquered Cyprus. That's how they've repopulated Istanbul and turned it into not an Islamic city, but a lively city. Because, I mean, much of the population that they brought to Istanbul Uh, after 1453 was not Muslim, but Christian Orthodox. So it's not about uh, sowing the seeds of a certain identity. It's about moving population around in order to do some kind of an engineering that works to the best of some kind of an economic and fiscal productivity of each area. Uh, So, and of course, you use it also in order to get rid of unwanted 
elements in certain areas, a bit like the British did for Australia. You know, most of the uh, the people who were deported to um, uh, Cyprus after 1571 uh, were criminals or people uh, the Ottoman state wanted to get rid of from Anatolia. So messing with population, with demography, is part and parcel of the imperial way of dealing with this. But in this particular case of the Syrian refugees, and it's not even the Syrian refugees, because if you've noted, uh, mm -hmm. most of the refugees who found themselves uh, in that no man's land between Greece and Turkey are not from Syria, but from Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, from further away. So it's not even what was really targeted the, at the beginning. But yeah. these are the playgrounds of the nations. And I always say that the nation state is much more violent than, than an empire. An empire kills, an empire massacres, but an empire does not commit genocide, which is one of the reasons why I do not consider the Ottoman Empire under Young Turk or under Unionist rule during World War One to be still an empire. Because if it commits genocide against Armenians, it means that it has already become a form of a nation state. It is using uh, the ideological power of, of a nation state and not the kind of flexibility that characterizes uh, an empire. Thank you, Tim. You, you briefly mentioned before the concept of the other, the exotic East. And I wonder, what do you think fed this idea in Europe about anything that's further away from the Balkans being the other? Well, um, it, it takes, I mean, if, if, you, if you take Said, he will tell you that it goes back to antiquity, uh, this division of Orient and Occident, of uh, East and West. And it's probably true, although the dimension it takes uh, during the early modern era, but especially during the modern era, uh, is what defines our values today of East and West. I mean, if you look at the 16th century, you can say that the Orient starts in Venice, not in Constantinople, but in Venice, that part of, of Europe is already in, in the Orient. Uh, there are ways in which you can see the Orient, again, uh, if you follow, for example, Nabil Matar, uh, there's a lot of parallels drawn between the Turks, the Moors, and the American Indians. So this otherness as being, because, I mean, Europe has this very uh, self-centered vision of its little parochial world and the world outside uh, as being totally different. So it's, it's out there already in the 16th century, but it becomes a major issue in the 19th century, in the 18th and 19th century, with the Enlightenment, with the rise of this notion of Oriental despotism and using the Ottomans as an example of something that is contrary to human nature or to European nature in terms of politics and whatever. And in the 19th century, because of the tension created by what is called the Eastern question, that is, in a nutshell, what are we going to do with the Ottoman Empire if it crumbles and if it creates a vacuum of power in the region due to rivalries, especially between Russia and, and England and Britain? So on, on the one hand, you have that. And on the other, you have the constitution of the big colonial empire, the British and the French, and much later, the German, 
which are very different from the colonial empires uh, we know of in the 16th century, the say the, the Spanish Empire, or from the Ottoman Empire, in the sense that they are very clear in their distinction between the nucleus of the of their empire, which is the metropolis, the metropole, as you would say in France, uh, that is the nation where you have equality, where you have political equality, defining the status of every individual. Britain is the same. And then you have the periphery, which is colonies, where people are differentiated racially, culturally, religiously, and politically, and legally. They don't have the same rights, and they are essentially others in terms of their color, in terms of their religion, in terms of whatever you you can think of as some kind of an objective, quote-unquote, distinction between uh, the white man and the other. And that is really what uh, creates the real Orientalism, the one that Said denounced, the one that is still very um, obviously present in the back of European minds or in the back of Oriental minds of uh, Turkey. I mean, uh, that's the beauty of Orientalism. It, It spreads to the rest of the periphery of the world. And you have such a thing as Ottoman Orientalism or the Kemalist revolution, the Turkish Uh, Republic is, to a large extent, an Orientalist project in the sense that it starts with the notion that the West is the best, Mm -hmm. that we will uh, follow uh, progress, modernity, civilization, and that we will force the uncouth, uncivilized peasants of East Anatolia, uh, the Muslim uh, uh, conservative elements, the Kurds, define them in whatever you, the others, those who do not belong to your enlightened little white world, you define them as the other and you force them into submission to the rules of the game as they are set by, uh, by the nation state, which although anti-imperialist, is still very Orientalist because it kind of uh, 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 appropriates the principles, the ideas of of Orientalism. Even the Ottomans uh, are like that. I mean, the Ottomans in the second half of the 19th century, when you read um, the the correspondence of an Ottoman governor in Yemen or in uh, Baghdad or in Basra, well, sometimes you get the impression that you're reading the correspondence of a British officer in India or a French officer in Algiers, because those categories of the barbaric Eastern uh, 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 individual who is frozen in time and cannot get out of it without the intervention of modernity and whatever, um, you end up uh, um, internalizing it yourself. So that's the power of Orientalism. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's still out there, uh, that it's still, and it's very funny to see that Orientalism and nationalism, Turkish nationalism especially, because that's what I know best, kind of uh, converge to a large extent because they end up agreeing on the uniqueness of Turkishness. I mean, the Europeans are the ones who, until the 19th, until the 20th century, have called the Ottomans Turks with all sorts of ambiguities, you know, Turk meaning Muslim, Turk meaning uh, racially, ethnically, religiously, and whatever, at a time when the Ottomans never used the term. The Ottomans did never decide what they, the only way they would use Turk 
or Turkish is to define the nomadic tribes of Anatolia or further who were of Turkoman origin. And it, it wasn't really a compliment. So it's the Europeans, in a sense, that have invented Turkish identity as a quote-unquote national identity. And of course, Turkish nationalism or Ottoman nationalism of a Turkish Islamic creed, when it developed at the, 19, at the end of the 19th century, it kind of jumped on this notion of Turkishness uh, in order to invent its own uh, nation. So therefore, Oriental perceptions of the uniqueness, the essential nature of Turkishness and whatever, is something that is, in a sense, shared by Turkish nationalism, which considers that Turks are better and whatever, and that they are distinct of Europe. So there you have it. If your nationalism kind of dovetails into the, the same definition of your uniqueness and therefore cuts any possibility of, of converging towards some kind of a more universalistic understanding of culture and whatever, there you have it. You have a perfectly Orientalist situation uh, that works um, um, in, in both uh, uh, ways. And of course, Orientalism is used by nationalism as a form of victimization. You know, everybody in Turkey, without even reading Said, will know about Said and say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Europe has been spending centuries uh, uh, constantly uh, criticizing the Orient and whatever. So you turn it into a third worldist kind of claim to your autonomy, your independence, and your victimization at the hands of the, uh, the big bad wolf, which is, you know, Europe and, and imperialism. It may be true to a certain extent, but you shouldn't reduce that to such a caricature of a much more complex situation. I feel it's very useful to have this juxtaposition of historical analysis of uh, Orientalism as a concept. And I, and I feel that we could be discussing a lot more about it because it's extremely current. That's definitely something we take a lot of consideration within converging paths when we are working on our program. But we definitely we need more than half an hour for, for that. So before we run out of time, I really want to hear about you and about what you're currently working on. Um, well, I'm, I'm working on, a, that's the advantages, the, the privilege of, uh, of seniority. So I'm working on several projects at the same time, um, which is sometimes dispersing, but sometimes very interesting. I have a long-term project which involves uh, the publication of the memoirs of an Ottoman prince uh, in the late 19th century. Um, this is a very unique kind of material. Uh, I've already uh, uh, published the first volume. I'm working on the second, and this is going to go as far as probably eight or ten volumes. So that's one uh, documentary, if you want, um, uh, uh, project. I'm working on the history of archaeology in the Ottoman lands, which is another way of addressing the issue of westernization on the Ottoman front and Orientalism on the European front to see how ruins uh, become the battleground of, of these ideologies and claims uh, to modernity. And the most immediate thing I'm doing now is I'm finishing a book that I promised to a French uh, publishing house, and that's going to be of interest to you, I suppose. It's on the Alhambra. I'm doing a, uh, a book that is based on uh, the converging views 
of Europe, uh, the Maghreb, that is mostly Morocco, and and uh, the Orient, which is mostly the Ottoman Empire, on the Alhambra in the 19th century. Uh, the starting point of this investigation was the discovery I made online of the visitors' books that were made available to visitors uh, to the Alhambra from 1829 on, mm -hmm. uh, where they could you know, drop a line about their impressions and sign. And it's a fantastic source uh, where you discover that there were uh, tens, uh, sometimes hundreds of quote-unquote Orientals visiting what had become already one of the most iconic uh, elements of Western Orientalism in, in art history, uh, but also in literature. So it's, it's a fascinating way of looking at these cross-readings of the same monument uh, by people of diverse backgrounds and try to connect that to a general understanding of how Orientalism work because uh, works, you know, in the Spanish case, I mean, what the Spaniards called the Leyenda Negra, it's Orientalism in many of its aspects. It's not just uh, some kind of a plot of the of the Protestant North against the Catholic uh, uh, South and whatever. It's also, especially in the 19th century, it's something that is embedded in an Orientalist vision of Spain and especially of uh, Al-Andalus, of uh, Andalusia. To me, it's, it's fascinating. I've already published an article on the Ottoman side of this and trying to make sense of how they viewed it uh, what their intellectual baggage was to appreciate the orientality, the Arabness, the Islamic identity of this monument. So it, that's really what I'm working on. I'm supposed to finish this by the end of the month. It is very engaging to talk to you, Atem. I think it's these reflections on concepts of historicity. And as you mentioned, particularly the Alhambra is a good one. I was raised in Spain, and I remember that our history books for 800 years of Muslim rule in the peninsula, only two pages were devoted to it. And it highlights this imbalance in between ideologies. And I think the way you have presented your ideas has been extremely illustrative and articulated. I wish we had more time. It sort of feels we're having here the privilege of having a masterclass with you. So I really want to thank you for sharing your time with us today. And of course, on behalf of the Baraka Trust and the rest of our sponsors, we hope that you're able to come to London after the lockdown is lifted and that we can hear more about your ambitious research. Certainly something we're looking forward to. Sure, I'd love that. It was, it was fun. Thank you very much. And more in the future. Thank you, Atem. And of course, finally, I want to thank our listeners as every week they are here with us and they are making questions, they are writing to us. So please do write to us. You can find my email on the website. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's always a very exciting content. There are feature movies, other talks that have been recorded, interviews, recipes, all sorts of variety of things that to make your isolation process a bit more joyful. I look forward to sharing a little bit of time next week with you. And until then, I hope you all keep safe and stay well. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.